Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. You are listening to Sisters on Air, a show that seeks inspiration from lived experiences of female legacies throughout history to confront today's challenges via dialogue, with the goal of informing, empowering and inspiring all women. My name is Saleha Bakhtiar and I will be your host for today's show, in which we will take a brief dive into the topic of the victim culture and how it's become a crucial issue for discussion, especially for women of all ages. In this episode, we aim to study the different presentations of the victim mindset and evaluate its detrimental impacts on the population. We will also answer the question of how women living in this modern world in search of equality can overcome beliefs of feeling victimized. Manfred Ketstevries, a Dutch professor of leadership development, has put it very simply, and I quote, the world is full of genuine victims, but without negating the reality of victimhood, being a victim is also a state of mind. We can reframe difficult life situations positively or regress to a victim mindset. There's always the option to make difficult situations look like things have been done to us. However, whenever we refuse to take responsibility for our behavior and actions, we unconsciously choose to act as a victim. We have lingering sense of betrayal, of being taken advantage of by others. Although the positive aspect of this position is the sense of being absolved from responsibility, the negative aspects, feeling of anger, fear, guilt or inadequacy, fall outweigh it. End quote. I am miserable, therefore I am, is the victim mindset of assuming no control and responsibility over one's life while hurting the people offering support. This passive-aggressive behaviour is increasingly causing resistance to the progression of a peaceful society and tipping the scales, favouring the burden of problems and decreasing solutions, or rather the willingness to reach one. Sociologists Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning in their book The Rise of Victimhood Culture talk of the victim culture as the new moral system. By explaining the traditional systems of honour and dignity, similar to victimhood, where it's important to react to certain types of minor offences, the honour culture society is sensitive to slights and responds to perceived offences with violence. However, victimhood's response is not through violence, but by publicly highlighting one's status as a victim and broadcasting the offender's microaggression. Because both victim and dignity cultures rely on outside authorities to intervene, they overlap. But dignity culture promotes having a thick skin and the realisation that one's innate value cannot be diminished by external slight. Similarly, victimhood culture promotes complaints to third parties while also drawing attention to one's suffering. Seeking sympathy from people in society who perceive victimhood as a status to be highlighted rather than conquering barriers as a show of moral strength. This last premise, that prestige, is gained by being viewed as a victim and it runs counter to both honour and dignity cultures. Being a university student and the rise of the victim culture coming to light due to US college scandals, I feel it necessary to speak upon this. As a Muslim, discharging compassion is an integral part of the teachings of the Holy Quran, the Holy Book for Muslims. However, feeding into unrealistic sympathy, which ultimately fosters a weaker and more dependent society of youth, is something that must be carefully considered. Take your life in your own hands and what happens? A terrible thing. No one to blame. Erica Young. We have here in our studio two guests for our discussion concerning the victimhood culture, Anila Talukdar and Dr. Zeb Ansari. Welcome to you both and thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Anila has a master's in chemistry and is currently teaching at a primary school and Dr. Zeb Ansari is a mother of three and an NHS dentist. Before we start our discussion, we have a report by Kutsia Ahmed. The sociologists of the aforementioned book, The Rise of Victimhood Culture, understandably point out that college campuses have the optimum breeding grounds for the rise of victimhood. The key argument is that the new moral culture of victimisation encourages moral dependence and a deterioration of one's capacity to deal with minor interpersonal issues on one's own. At the same time as it weakens individuals, it generates a society in which people fight for identity as victims or as protectors of victims. Donald Black, a sociologist who's done cross-cultural studies of conflict and morality, said this to have stemmed from legal over-dependency, where if we were to take America as an example, 
partisanship between the victim and third parties results from partisans siding with socially closer disputant. Meaning when one side of a dispute has a higher standing than the other, third parties are more inclined to take that side. But keep in mind that these support-seeking initiatives do not always come from the lowest strata of society. They are not always organised or led by people who are totally devoid of wealth, reputation, education or other types of social standing. Rather, the comparatively well-educated and wealthy populations of American schools and universities seem to provide fertile ground for such forms as microaggression complaints and protest marches. The socially excluded are so inferior to others that they are unlikely to solicit their help and are much less likely to get it. In an equitable and diverse environment like modern American colleges and universities, equality and diversity are paramount. It is in these environments that violations of these values are most evident. Places that make the most progress towards equality and diversity can be expected to have the lowest bar for what constitutes a breach of equality and inclusion. Some universities have lowered standards, so low that questions like where are you from are branded as offensive behaviour, as it could be undermining others' identity. Accidental offence is made by everyone and they are rarely intended. So who is at fault here? You may ask, but that's not the question we should be pondering over. Rather, how do we resolve this unnecessary absurdity, which a byproduct of hyperdiversity? The solution to this cannot be put better than what the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the supreme founder of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, said: "Help your brother, be he the oppressor or the oppressed." The companion said, "O Prophet of Allah, we understand that we should help him when he is the aggrieved party." But how should we help him when he is the wrongdoer? The Prophet replied, Hold his hand. So if we continue to the explanatory extract of this valuable guidance, we read that this excellent hadith, which is an Arabic term for the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, tells us that brotherhood or sisterhood is a value that cannot be disregarded or neglected under any circumstances. This is true whether a brother or sister, the oppressor or the victim. Being the guilty or damaged party has no bearing on the fact that someone who is our brother or sister is always deserving of assistance. If they are the oppressed party, support them in the fight against injustice. However, if they are the perpetrator, embrace them, hug them tightly and hold their oppressive hand while saying brother, sister... I stand by you in all circumstances, but Islam does not permit injustice, so I will not let your hand do wrong. Thus preserving brotherliness or sisterliness and preventing injustice. This is the multifaceted philosophy that the Prophet of Allah, may peace and blessings be on him, presented to the world from the Arabian desert 14 centuries ago. Yet none of the progressive countries in Europe or America have, as of today, reached this level of ethics. Contrarily, moral philosophy holds that regardless of whether we are dealing with a brother or a stranger, it is our responsibility to rid this world of all injustice and evil and to impose virtue. The fact that someone is a stranger does not give us license to treat him or her unfairly, and the fact that someone is our brother does not entitle us to aid in his wrongdoing and serve as his accomplices. In essence, he made the observation that brother or sisterhood was such a sacred relationship that it could never be severed under any circumstances, whether a brother is good or wicked, an oppressor or an oppressed, he remains a brother forever, and there can never be a severing of brotherly bonds. So the two tenets should be balanced in such a way that assistance should be given to the brother or sister in all circumstances, but if the brother is an oppressor, assistance should take a different shape. In chapter 2, verse 256 of the Holy Quran, Allah states, Who is he that will intercede with him except by his permission? He knows what is before them and what is behind them, 
and they encompass nothing of his knowledge except what he pleases. We read in commentaries of this verse that human beings are responsible for themselves and that no one shall be allowed to intercede for any person except with the permission of God is that nobody knows what is in the minds of men and consequently none is in a position to intercede for another. God alone knows the secrets of men's hearts and hence there can be no intercession except by his permission for he alone knows who is deserving of it. This shines a light on our accountability in this life, how we hold responsibility for our circumstances, and shifting blame of our unfortunate grievances onto others' fails to protect us from due outcomes. Also seen in the later verse of this chapter, Allah states, Allah burdens not any soul beyond its capacity, it shall have the reward it earns, and it shall get the punishment it incurs. Chapter 2, verse 287. Again, Quranic commentary explains that this verse is telling us that there is no need for atonement because it's understood that the commandments of God are always given with due regard for human capacities and weaknesses. That purification in this world does not necessarily signify complete freedom from all kinds of failings and shortcomings. All that man is expected to do is sincerely to strive after good and avoid sin to the best of his power, and the rest will be forgiven him by the merciful God. Thus presenting the most powerful refutation of the doctrine of atonement. Thank you, Goodseer, for the report. Since a society filled with victim culture is doomed to collapse, where the display of one's victim status and superiority leading to oppression of youths counter to their own, what are some key research features of a progressive mindset which guarantee success of a civilization? Well, firstly, I'd like to start with talking about two types of mindsets, chiefly growth mindset and fixed mindset. The way we think about ourselves and our abilities shapes our lives. The way we think about our intellect and talents not only affects the way we feel, it can also affect what we achieve, whether we stick to new habits or we will go on to develop new skills. A growth mindset means that you believe your intelligence and talents can be developed over time, whereas a fixed mindset means that you believe intelligence is fixed. So if you're not good at something, you might believe you'll never be good at it. The first person to describe the growth mindset was a psychologist called Dr. Carol Dweck from Stanford University. In her groundbreaking research, Dweck investigated why some people fail and others succeed. In one study, high school students were challenged with puzzles that ranged from easy to difficult. Much to the surprise of researchers, some students embraced failure and treated it as a learning experience, and this positive attitude was what Dweck later coined the growth mindset. Her research also found that it's more beneficial not to praise talent or natural abilities, but rather to praise the process. In particular, effort, strategies, persistence and resilience should be rewarded. These processes play a major role in providing constructive feedback and creating a positive student-teacher relationship. Dweck later noted that while effort is an important part of a growth mindset, it shouldn't be the main focus of praise. Effort should be a means to learning and improving. There are many studies by Dweck and others which indicate that a growth mindset has a positive effect on motivation and academic performance. One study examined the academic enjoyment of undergraduate students and after learning about the neuroplasticity of the brain. The students were encouraged to endorse a growth mindset through three one-hour sessions on brain functioning. Students showed significantly higher motivation and enjoyment of science after learning about the growth mindset than in the control group. Studies suggest that students who endorsed a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset had higher grades in mathematics, languages and grade point average. Additionally, there are other benefits of a growth mindset which include reduced burnout, fewer psychological problems such as depression and anxiety and fewer behavioural problems. Thank you. Why highlight one's victimization? The contrast between perpetrator and victim is always morally significant, diminishing the offender's moral standing. 
This enhances the motivation to air grievances and it implies that offended parties are more inclined to emphasize their victimhood, highlighting their own pain and innocence. Their opponents are privileged and blameworthy, while they deserve pity and are blameless. The major irony is that the culture of victimhood rewards people for adopting a personal identity as injured, vulnerable and aggrieved. And as students complete university and seek to enter the workforce, this is a prescription for failure and endless dispute. So historically, do we find mention of such mindsets resembling victimhood and what are the end results of such a society? Well, we read in American academic pieces that victimhood culture has created a nation of individuals who fight vigilantly against microaggressions, standing up for every underprivileged group. This must end if we want to restore individual autonomy, shape identities and effectively assist true victims. Subscribing to victimhood culture detracts from one's sense of personal responsibility. Those who avoid owning up to their role in their situation surrender their ability to choose by giving greater leverage to forces outside of themselves. This attitude of entitlement takes life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness and turns it into government handouts, reparations and a lack of accountability for oneself. It also generates a society of people who identify foremost as being oppressed when the most important parts of one's identity should not be based on what injustices one has faced. In a research study at Tel Aviv University, Professor Rahav Gabe found that individuals who defined themselves by their victimhood were more likely to shift blame to others and see themselves as victims in all interpersonal relationships. This identity shift unfortunately perpetuates a fixed victimhood mindset that stunts individuals from being able to progress past their current circumstances. As a result, victimization becomes a central part of the individual's identity, Gabe said. The strength of a person's character and the value of their life are defined not by what problems have been placed in their path, but instead what they have done to turn those obstacles into opportunities. A victimhood mindset grants a momentary feeling of power and moral superiority, but does not improve any lives in the long run. American political commentator Candace Owens gave an example of black Americans living in the segregated South. At this time, acts as simple as using a water fountain not designated for their skin color or being out in the streets after dark could result in not just embarrassment or hurt feelings, but in death for black Americans. Fighting for one's rights is a genuine matter of survival, Owens said. Whereas the victimhood culture we see in America today is the plaything of a society with too much time on its hands. This does not mean that true victims of deprivation, crime and discrimination do not deserve empathy. Of course they do. Again, we read in American academic pieces that the issue is the increasingly blurred line between fighting for the well-being of victimized individuals and promoting a culture of victimhood. Well-meaning politicians have only made situations worse by victimizing groups, from creating stagnating Native American reservations overrun with crime to funding housing projects that leave people of color in the inner cities in a cycle of poverty. Letting others dictate our progress in life is a recipe for defeat without removing the root element which makes the minorities victims in the first place. Thank you. In their piece for The Atlantic, uh, Greg uh, Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt argue that taking offence can be harmful. The authors point out that instructing students to exaggerate the importance of things or designate others as aggressors goes against the principles of cognitive behavioural therapy, which has been shown to be beneficial in treating anxiety and depression and may induce or aggravate mental health problems. Similarly, efforts to protect pupils from anything that could trigger their trauma might impair their capacity to overcome it. To the degree that this is valid, the solutions proposed by activists to alleviate damage may not be just ineffective, but even counterproductive. So I'd like to reach further and ask, how is the victim mindset detrimental to oneself in terms of long-term side effects? 
Well, I suppose, thinking about what a victim mindset is, if you constantly think that life is against you and that you're always hard done by, one would never strive to improve their circumstance. For example, sometimes parents think that if they aren't good at something, then their children won't be good at it either. My mum has always thought she's not good at maths and struggled with it at school, but she never just gave up and didn't bother. She worked hard to improve so she could pass. As her child, I could easily have given in to this mindset of, well, my mum's not good at maths, which means I won't be either. This can sometimes happen if a child is told by their parents that they weren't good at something when they were younger. They think that means they won't be either, and so sometimes won't put in the effort. I was lucky, as my parents' past was never set as a limiting factor for me, and I was taught to always try my best. And to pray. That's probably a key factor for all Muslims. Another example that could be used, sticking to the education theme, are people who are first in their family to go to university. There must be people out there who think they're not good enough or no one in their family has ever been, so why should they try? However, that does not mean that they cannot go to university if they desire. There are many people who have been the first one in their family to attend university due to their mindset of perseverance. I guess it's a bit different now, with cost being a factor, but where there's a will, there's a way. And I guess if one has a victim mindset, one cannot retain a mindset of perseverance. I also think that having a victim mindset could lead to a lack of confidence. If one never strives to improve one's circumstances or spends life thinking that they are bad at something, then it would lead them to start lacking in confidence. Not just in things they are too scared to try, but it could also lead to a lack in confidence in things they are good at. If you spend long enough convincing yourself you're not good at something, you can end up thinking you're not good at anything. Alienating people around you in your life could also be a detrimental side effect. If one is constantly talking about how their life is hard, then one is not thinking about others. There are some people in life who, when you try to talk to them about a problem you're having, or just want, need to vent about life a bit, they always turn it around and make it about them. They may briefly acknowledge you before relating a problem of theirs that was so much worse, sometimes even bypass the acknowledging stage. We all have problems, but they are relative. If I feel negative or low, I like to remind myself of how lucky I am and how there are people going through much harder times, just to put things into perspective. I think it's very important to highlight that your question, Salia, specifically said long term. I just personally want to say it's totally valid to feel emotions of, shall I say, doom and gloom for a short period of time in a safe space. I actually think that not feeling emotions of negativity can lead to a victim mentality. We are human after all, and we need to acknowledge that life is hard sometimes before we can move on. Is that a controversial thing to say when talking about this topic? I just feel like we should be able to wallow for a bit, but not too long. I can't remember who it was now, but there was a celebrity that said that they let themselves feel a negative emotion fully for a day or so, but then they pick themselves up and carry on with life. After all, isn't acceptance one of the five steps to recovery or something like that? Thank you, Anila. The same circumstances that motivate the aggrieved to employ a method against their opponents also motivates those opponents to utilise that tactic. Certainly all kinds of individuals will try to stake a claim of victimhood or honour or anything else anytime it provides a status. The response of individuals who are accused of oppression is typically to claim that they are victims as well. As clinical psychologist David J. Lay observes, hence those condemned of being insensitive announce their own history of victimization and people criticize a sexist for confronting radical feminism defend themselves as victims of reverse sexism. Victimhood culture leads to a cycle of competitive victimization in this way. Both young people on the left and right draw into the circle of resentment. Political divisions is predicted to worsen over the next decades as this victim-blaming moral culture grows. How do we keep future generations from giving up their ability to fend for themselves? So this question brings to mind a tweet from Owen Jones saying that we live in a country which demonizes women both for wearing too much and for wearing too little. I think many of the responses that ensued did a good job of summing up the alienation of victimhood pushers from reality nowadays. Some of these comments were made in a jocular fashion, but they offer snapshots of a growing sentiment against social media's pity distributors. Commentators who build their personal brand by complaining, mostly on behalf of others, might I add, are becoming tiresome at best and at worst doing more harm than good. 
Imagine someone waking up before work and thinking of all the things that disadvantage them relative to their colleagues. In truth, there are hundreds of personal features that could negatively impact an individual's success. For some other people, those same features may be used to their advantage. Once we start to control for other factors, such as how individuals react to and are compensated for what they cannot easily change about themselves, discovering the biggest victim in the office is impossible. Experts suggest that one way to save future generations from this insidious victimhood culture is to indoctrinate the current generation with a growth mindset, as discussed earlier. This, coupled with the ability to overlook microaggressions for what they are, are the two critical changes that we, as a society, need to undergo. Thank you, Zabe. You are listening to the Sisters on Air show. We will now take a short break. Stay tuned. In his magnum opus, Brahini Ahmadiyya, part 5, the promised Messiah, peace be on him, writes, By only observing the exceedingly intelligent design of this universe and the culmination of its structure into the highest perfection and stability, sound reason can comprehend the necessity of the fact that there ought to be some creator of these incomparable creations. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to today's episode on Sisters on Air, where we were discussing the victim culture. Now, in the Holy Quran, chapter 7, verse 198, it states, And they whom you call on beside him have no power to help you, nor can they help themselves. This is just one example where Allah tells us that the idols that one looks upon have no power to assist us. Rather, it's only Allah who has the power to deliver us from any anguish and guide us in the right direction. Further, in another verse of chapter 3, Allah states, Nay, Allah is your protector and he is the best of helpers. Here Allah is promising the believers that he is the greatest guardian. Surely a promise as pronounced as this can only come from a true living God. Together with this and the following verse, we come to conclude, certainly in religious terms, that seeking sympathy from a third party holds no benefit to any victim, so to speak, and one who desires to truly relieve themselves from any ill circumstances can turn to God for a genuine solution. Allah reminds us countless times of his unlimited grace. For instance, in chapter 9, verse 91 of the Holy Quran, it's mentioned, no blame lies on the weak, nor on the sick, nor on those who find naught to spend. If they are sincere to Allah and his messenger, there is no cause of reproach against those who do good deeds, and Allah is most forgiving, merciful. So again, it's an established truth that sometimes we would fall into the weak or sick category. So instead of falling prey to despair or hopelessness, Remember that whatever effort we do exert to the betterment of ourselves or others will not go to waste, as Allah is very lenient. In this way, we are encouraged to do the best we can without assuming that we are the only one suffering and thus require special attention and sympathy, as not only is Allah the true judge of genuine victims, but he is also the fountainhead of true sympathy and support. Now, if I move on to my next question, in a way, we can say that neglecting control over one's circumstances is running away from suffering and trials. What is Islam's view on facing trials and whom do we give ownership for bettering our dire conditions? Um, as Muslims, we expect to encounter trials in our lives and it's probably not just limited to Muslims. In times of hardship, meaning trials and suffering, we turn to Allah and ask him to help us through them. That's the short answer. I do believe that it is a commonality in all religions, though. I'd like to quote a verse from the Holy Quran that states, And we will try you with something of fear and hunger, and loss of wealth and lives and fruits, but give glad tidings to the patient, who, when a misfortune overtakes them, say, Surely to Allah we belong, and to him shall we return. This is from chapter 2, verses 156 to 157. I think it's clear from these verses how we as Muslims are taught to handle trials. Patience is key. 
Patients here are implying that we go through the hardships, not avoid them, face trials head on, and those of us that do will be rewarded with glad tidings. I was actually reading the commentary for these verses, and it stated that people are put through trials, whether they are at an advanced spiritual stage or not, and that the only difference is the reason for it. For those who are at an advanced spiritual stage, the reason is to make them shine as models of virtue and purity, so people take notice. On the other hand, for those who are not spiritually advanced, it is to show us where our weaknesses lie so that we can improve ourselves, which links back to victimhood culture, I guess. We endure hard times, but once we realise where we are lacking, we should better ourselves, regardless of other extrinsic factors. Islam actually teaches us to look at ourselves before we look at others, try and improve our own faults rather than focusing on others. The commentary of this verse had a good reminder, I think, about how misfortunes and afflictions usually involve a certain amount of pain, but they also afford a good opportunity for spiritual reformation and purification, which will hopefully strengthen the faith. Silver lining to every cloud. Verse 157 reiterates what I previously said about turning to Allah. In our times of suffering and trials, we should turn to Allah and ask for his help. The verse mentions a prayer that we as Muslims should recite when going through a trial. Surely, to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. In essence, the prayer is a reminder that everything we have in this world is because Allah has granted it to us and that we should be grateful for it rather than feel entitled to it. I hope that somewhat answers the question. I mean, I probably answered it within the first 30 seconds, but I thought it would be interesting to mention those two verses of the Holy Quran. Thank you, Anila. Yes, I did find it really interesting. So-called honour cultures emerge in areas where legal authority is weak or non-existent and where a reputation of toughness may be the only effective deterrent against violence. Those raised in a culture of honour because they esteem personal bravery and capacity will frequently avoid relying on law or any other authority even when it's accessible, refusing to degrade their position by relying on another to conduct their business. But as state power has grown and dependence on the law has grown, honour culture has given way to something new, a culture of dignity. Dignity exists regardless of uh, what others believe, hence a culture of dignity values public reputation less. Insults may cause offence, but they are no longer holding the same weight in terms of creating or damaging a reputation for toughness. It's even commendable to have thick skin that allows one to shrug off slights and even serious insults. And in a dignity-based society, parents might teach their children something along the lines of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. An idea that would be alien in an honour-based culture. Individuals are also expected to avoid criticising others, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and an overall self-control ethic prevails. The growth of law, order and commerce in the modern world facilitated the rise of the culture of dignity, which largely supplanted the culture of honour among the middle and upper classes of the West. But the rise of microaggression complaints suggests a new direction in the evolution of moral culture. This culture can also impact our way of thinking and even the way we envision our lives and our future. Leading on to my next question. We see online that stepping out of our comfort zone is often considered the only way to, uh, to reach success. However, some do not desire a life of struggle. Is it necessary for all of us to go through some anguish to achieve a meaningful and fruitful life? Um, I'm just wondering whether going through anguish and stepping out of one's comfort zone are synonymous with each other. I think everyone probably goes through anguish in their life. It's just relative to them. What I consider anguish may not be what you consider anguish. I guess the real question is how we deal with anguish or suffering. If we dwell on it, then it cannot be a good thing, I don't think. Not to say that we can't have a moment or two to feel anguish. Like I said before, feeling all emotions are important. But it's what we do next, how we attempt to come out of it. Whichever route we take out of that anguish would hopefully make us feel a sense of success because we've managed to overcome it. So I think it's something that we all experience at some point in our lives, probably many times. I'm not sure anyone wants to experience a life of struggle, but again, we all have our own relative struggles, if that makes sense. It's all about that silver lining of what you learn from the experience. You've got to hold on to those positives. With regards to stepping out of one's comfort zone, I mean, I'm not going to say it's the only way to be successful. I think there are benefits, though. 
In essence, you're trying something new by stepping out of your comfort zone, and trying something new means you're learning. Learning leads to growth. So I don't think it's a bad thing. Growth is important. It means we're improving ourselves. From an Islamic point of view, we are always striving to be better, so stepping out of our comfort zone will, in essence, act as a catalyst. I mean, I can say that throughout my life, being part of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has made me step out of my comfort zone many, many times. But it's definitely helped me to grow, both as a person and spiritually. I know that a younger me couldn't even imagine talking on a radio broadcast, but I've learned so much by being a part of the shows on The Voice of Islam. It's truly a blessing. Even if I tend to over-worry about everything before and after, so I would definitely recommend trying things you're not comfortable with. Sometimes I feel like being uncomfortable is part of life. Thank you, Anila. I totally agree. In chapter 9, verse 41 of the Holy Quran, Allah states, Go forth light and heavy and strive with your property and your persons in the cause of Allah. This is better for you if only you knew. And in verse 96 of chapter 4 of the Holy Quran, Allah states, Those of the believers who sit still, accepting the disabled ones, and those who strive in the cause of Allah, with their wealth and their persons are not equal. Allah has exalted and ranked those who strive with their wealth and their persons above those who sit still. And to each, Allah has promised good. And Allah has exalted those who strive above those who sit still by a great reward. By reading Quranic commentary on this, we learn that the verse speaks of the different classes of believers only and not of hypocrites. Believers of two classes. One, those who sincerely accept the truth and try to live up to the teachings of Islam, but take no part in the struggle to defend and propagate the faith. These are, as it were, passive believers, sitters as the verse names them. Second, those who not only live up to the teachings of Islam, but also vigorously participate in work of its propagation. These are active believers, the strivers, or mujahids as they are called. The latter are far superior to the former in the sight of God. This is, however, a class of believers who, even though they do not join this, uh, their brethren in actually fighting believers, gain equal reward with those who take part in the actual struggle. These are referred to in the words, accepting the disabled ones. Their inability to take part in actual fighting is due to circumstances over which they have no control. They are heart and soul with the Muslims who are mujahids, whether the latter go to fight in the cause of God, but their particular circumstances, disease, poverty, etc., do not allow them to join the expedition in person. Of these, the Holy Prophet once told his companions in one of his expeditions that there were men in Medina who were with them in every march they made and in every valley they traversed and who were getting the same reward. The companions asked the Holy Prophet in surprise how that could be possible and, and who were those fortunate ones. They are the ones of your brethren, replied the Holy Prophet, who were eager to join us but were prevented from doing so by circumstances beyond their control. These are the ones in whose case the verse makes an exception in the words accepting the disabled ones. But the actual sitters, though, entitled to good reward if true and sincere in their faith, were in no case on par with the strivers, neither in rank nor in reward. Commentary on the Holy Quran, Volume 2, Surah An-Nisa, page 690-691. So, intention is key and willingness to strive. What's the benefit of fighting your own battles and not giving up in the face of adversity at an intrinsic level? Does a soul require striving once in a while? Our faith teaches us that one of the important characteristics of a Muslim is that we remain in a positive state of mind, whatever the circumstances. Muslims should never despair, not even in most difficult moments. Everything turns positive for a Muslim with such a depth of soul. Whether it be trouble or difficulty, it is Allah who bestows them on that person. He is a believer's helper and guardian. Muslims know that any trying times they find themselves in are a God-sent test. They take things in their stride, recalling what Allah Almighty has stated in the Qur'an, and I quote, It may be that you dislike a thing while it is good for you, and it may be that you like a thing while it is bad for you. Allah knows all things and you know not. The Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 217. 
Every stage in this instruction is, by Allah's will, a means whereby Muslims can take another step toward attaining God's pleasure. We are weak and prone to error. In spite of our firm faith, we try and strive constantly to better ourselves. A major indicator of a Muslim's sincerity is repentance and taking refuge in Allah and making sincere intention not to repeat our error but to learn from our mistakes. We read in the Holy Quran, Allah states how Muslims should behave in the face of their own mistakes. And I quote, And those who, when they commit a foul deed or wrong themselves, remember Allah and implore forgiveness for their sins. And who can forgive sins except Allah and do not persist knowingly in what they have done. The Holy Quran, chapter 3, verse 136. The teachings of Islam, when followed properly, do not let us lose hope or confidence, which can lead to a victimhood mindset. For example, a hadith or tradition of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet said, Wondrous is the case of a believer, there is good for him in everything, and it is so for him alone. If he experiences something agreeable, he is grateful to God, and that is good for him, and if he experiences adversity, he is steadfast, and that is good for him. As for striving of the soul, there is so much to say, but I will mention one Friday sermon some years ago of our Caliph, His Holiness, Mirza Masrur Ahmed, in which he explained that in an elucidation of the Quranic verse, And as for those who strive in our path, we will surely guide them in our ways. Chapter 29, verse 70. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, said that in Islam the entire matter rests on striving, without which nothing can be attained. Like any progress in the world, spiritual development is also gradual, and nothing can be attained without striving. And this striving also must be in accordance with God's commandments rather than any self-made spiritual exercises. The promised Messiah, peace be on him, has also explained that we go through a state of both spiritual contraction, which is called qabs, and spiritual expansion, which is called bust. In the state of spiritual expansion, our pleasure and delight in worship heightens, our inclination towards God increases, but at times we also experience a state in which this is lost and the heart becomes constricted and the only way to do away with this state is to strive in our prayers and supplication. Paraphrase passage from the Mulfuzat, volume 2, page 15. I myself have experienced this. It is human nature to become lackadaisical in prayers and supplications, when a trial hits, we know ultimately in our hearts that only God is omnipotent and thus we fall before him in prayer and humble ourselves as we beseech his mercy. It is this very act that brings us peace and once the storm passes, we reflect and are grateful for God's never-ending love. Thank you. I like that word, like a days ago. So if we move on to a Quranic verse, that is number 29 in chapter 4, Allah desires to lighten our burden, for man has been created weak, which speaks of difficulties one faces in spirituality, yet hold so much relevance and an amazing source of inspiration in our worldly lives also. Again, Quranic commentary on this verse explains that the reason why the law mentioned in this verse is revealed is that man is by nature weak and cannot himself find out the ways of spiritual advancement. So God has taken this burden from him. It was far from God to entrust man with a work which he could not discharge. The law is not therefore a curse, but a help and a blessing. Commentary on the Holy Quran, volume 2, Surah An-Nisa, page 643. We learn that there are many a times when we do not have control to make changes in our current situations for whatever reason and that everyone has moments of such weakness. So feeling victimized about such occurrences would be the least wise way to interpret our lows in our life. And as not only do we have an all-present God to help us through all the ups and downs in our lives, 
But these moments teach us so much about ourselves and hence are actually blessings rather than landmarks that highlight misery. From history, we see examples of godly people going through some of the most challenging trials. Both men, women and their children show exceptional sacrifices. Could you share some examples and tell our audience what keeps them steadfast and the attitudes they display regarding their aggrieved circumstances? Where to start? Um, There are far too many examples to fit in. Uh, The first one that springs to my mind, though, for some reason, is the wife of Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, Hazrat Hadra. The head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness, Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, talked about Hazrat Hadra's magnificent example in one of his addresses on Eid al-Azha. There was a time when Prophet Abraham left Hazrat Hadra and their son, who was a baby at the time, in a barren land due to a commandment from Allah. His Holiness said that she showed a tremendous spirit of sacrifice and told her husband with great resolve and firmness, then you must leave us if this is being done as a result of the commandment of Allah the Almighty, then Allah will never forsake us. This links back to the verse I was talking about earlier in the, from the Holy Quran about how we will be tried and if we are patient, we will be rewarded. Hazrat Hadra showed great patience and she was rewarded as Allah arranged for a constant stream of water in the very place where they were left. This fountain or stream continues to give water today. Allah the Almighty also arranged for food. In fact, he established a town in the desert and according to his promise, Allah the Almighty provided for all necessities and all the fruits and blessings are available in it. There was a time when it was a barren desert and now that place has become the source of income for hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people eat from there. So Hazrat Hadra showed patience in her time of hardship and Allah the Almighty fulfilled his promise. I mean, all prophets have undergone times of hardship and challenging trials. Prophet Noah, peace be upon him, um, endured a flood and had some of his family abandon him. Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, was hung on a cross by his enemies, but he was patient and Allah helped him to be taken down early and enabled him to escape from his enemies. As Muslims, the example of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, stands out. He went through so many years of persecution from his enemies and even after being allowed to migrate, he was still pursued by them. He was, however, patient throughout these trials that were not only brought upon him, but his people as well. For so many years, they did nothing and just suffered through all the injustices they were put through, physical violence as well as verbal abuse. However, Allah rewarded their patience with glad tidings and they prospered. Um, The commentary of the verse that I was talking about earlier actually said that all the hardships mentioned in that verse were borne by the Muslims with such patience and fortitude that is unrivaled in all history. So God tried them and found them truly patient. Thank you. That truly is very inspirational. Lack of accountability demonstrates lack of goals, aspiration and purpose. The willingness to challenge our stance and circumstances leads to movement, which is vital for survival and evident in nature. Despite concrete, plantation is able to surface. Changes in weather lead two birds to migrate, and regardless of countless bees in a hive, every bee finds a place in the nest. Passion is required. The ache is required for your goals. If you are thirsty, you will run to the nearest well, so to speak. The stronger the urgency, the further you will go to get where you want to be, and hence the more powerful the outcome. In current debates, we find a struggle between dignity and victimization. Just as there is a clash between honour and dignity in the past, one person's standards incites another's resentment, actions of social control are considered uncontroversial, and accidental transgressions occur, and the struggle will rage on. Each side will present its case, gathering adherents and winning or losing different fights as it goes on. When modern communication tools make it so simple to publish concerns, the upshot, as we have seen, is the growth of the victimhood culture. This now brings me to the final question. Women constantly fight for rights. What should women do collectively to gain equality from a secular society and what mindset do they require to enable them to gain their well-deserved rights without falling prey to counterfeit expressions of empowerment? Yes, uh, Salia, well, this is a very interesting question and I was reading up on this and found a piece which explained things well and 
I have here in my notes what it said. So success is not just about taking a seat at the proverbial table. It requires adopting the belief that if you say the wrong thing or do poorly initially, you will bounce back and try again. Confidence is impossible when you interpret failure as a pronouncement about your own potential. The piece went on to say that by contrast, people with a growth mindset think their abilities can be improved with effort, strategy and mentoring. Drawn to challenge, they persist despite setbacks or even because of setbacks. Are girls and women more likely to have a fixed mindset? Maybe. In one study, fifth grade students were given a task to learn that intentionally confused them at first. It was the girls who were derailed by the confusion and unable to learn the material. Notably, the highest IQ girls struggled the most. Mindset can be traced to the types of praise we receive from parents and teachers. Celebrating a child's intelligence can instill a fixed mindset. The child becomes determined to prove how smart she is rather than learn from a task that might initially involve failure. The piece explained that children praised for their effort or strategies, what's called process praise, develop a growth mindset and become more motivated to tinker with a problem than solve it right off the bat. Starting in infancy, parents tend to give boys more process praise, an advantage that results in a greater desire for challenge and a growth mindset later on. In the classroom, teachers give boys more process feedback, inviting them to try new strategies or work harder after a mistake. As a result, boys learn to see challenges and setbacks as things they can tackle with the right plan. Girls, on the other hand, perhaps seen as well-motivated already, are given fewer messages to try harder or again. They are left to wonder whether their challenges reflect something deeper about their ability. Addressing this at the fundamental grassroots level will set off the chain reaction of females then developing growth mindsets, constantly bettering themselves to reach their true potential and thus thriving in secular society. Thank you so much, both of you. Anila and Zabe, thank you so much. You have added so much to this discussion. And with this, we bring our episode of Sisters on Air to an end. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for more dialogue on confronting today's challenges in aims to inform, empower and inspire all women. You've been listening to Sisters on Air, produced by Mrs. Shermeen Butt. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you.